Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. Financial technology, or fintech in short, has been hailed as one of the great enablers of development in our times. Not only has it assisted businesses by helping them cut down operational costs and find new ways of delivering their products, but it has also facilitated financial inclusion, thereby empowering millions of people who couldn't previously access financial services and markets. To talk about the revolution in fintech, we have with us in the studio Philip von Restoff and Sapnendu Mohanty. Philip currently serves as the deputy CEO at Luxembourg for Finance, LFF, the agency for the development of the Luxembourg Financial Center. Prior to his appointment at LFF, Philip served as the head of communications for the Luxembourg Bankers Association, where he also held the position of secretary of the Bankers Association Board of Directors. Sapnendu Mohanty is a chief fintech officer at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, MAS, where he is responsible for creating development strategies, public infrastructure, and regulatory policies around technology innovation. Sapnendu has spent over two decades in various leadership roles globally in the fields of technology, finance, and innovation. Philip Sapnendu, welcome to Interpreting India. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's just start by talking a little bit about fintech itself. You know, it's it's something which has emerged as a great enabler, not just of business, but also, uh, you know, as a, as a way of providing inclusion in various kinds of societies, including developing societies, not just developed ones. Um, and it, it's an umbrella term which captures so many different kinds of activities. Uh, I was wondering if you could get us started off by talking a little bit about what do you think are the recent and most interesting trends in the field? Uh, Philip, do you want to start? Mm. So so coming out of Luxembourg, uh, where we are very strong in, in, in payment system and where we have uh, a lot of the, the, the fintech actors, the major fintech actors like Rakuten, uh, Amazon Pay, uh, etc. This is this is obviously uh, one of, of, the, of the major sectors within the fintech industry, which is uh, thriving in Luxembourg. Uh, on a more broader sense, uh, we do believe that uh, fintech is a key driver in the financial industry and it will uh, change the nature of finance itself. And we very much believe that in five to ten years, uh, the financial industry will have another face, will have other processes and will move towards uh, a movement which we call platformization, where people uh, can look up financial instruments, can compare them, uh, have all the transparent information they need to make uh, an informed choice. So uh, we believe that fintech is uh, a key changer in the industry. Uh, From a Singapore perspective, uh, I think the way I look at the whole fintech space is is in a timeline. Before 2015 or or after post-global financial crisis, it was a very Western American story of tech companies solving financial need when banks withdrew from the space post-global financial crisis. Then it became an inclusion story, the Kenya story, the India Aadhaar story. And after that, from 2015 onwards, there's a Singapore story. And the Singapore story behind fintech was around how do we take all this remarkable technology scaled up delivering solution at a cost point, which is interesting and 
quite uh, attractive for even a developed economy and, and and see how we can apply that to all asset class. So you guys do what asset class because a regulator, that's what we use. That can I take all this technology, all this innovation, apply to to banks, to the insurance companies, to the asset managers, and see whether we can redefine some of the cost structure behind this financial services. And that will enable a new kind of financial architecture, which I think will be more relevant to the millennials coming to be part of the new financial sector uh, from a consumer standpoint. So Singapore's 2015 journey was about shifting the dialogue from a disruptor to a collaborator. And 2019, when you look at it, uh, and for the Singapore FinTech Festival, you see the shift. And I use the word that FinTechs are helping unbanked banks, the banks who don't have good technology, to be able to now bank better and compete against the sector they didn't serve earlier. So that's the shift we see. And I think that's where FinTech is going to be the most uh, expanded in terms of scope and more impactful. But is fintech is also changing the nature of banking itself, hasn't it? I, I, it definitely, from a from a from a if you look from a regulator perspective, if you look at uh, what regulators really worry is that are the are this fintech creating systemic uh, risk or opportunities? The way we looked at, they will bring a lot of opportunity in bringing down the cost structure, making it much more relevant to the new crowd who demand a different kind of financial services. Same time, it is important for regulators to also start understanding the new risk it comes along with it. How, to, how they use cloud computing, how they use APIs, how they do outsourcing. So these are the new emerging risks which regulators have to start thinking about as they bring the fintech to the fold of the new architecture of financial services. And is much of this regulatory frameworks, are they being developed nationally? Is there an international dimension to it? I mean, we know after the financial crisis, but also before, uh, the Bank of International Settlements, for instance, took a lead role in, you know, recalibrating global financial services uh, and ensuring precisely about how do we, you know, mitigate against certain kinds of risks and prepare for other kinds of eventualities. Is something similar happening with the fintech space? Well, I, I, uh, I coming from Luxembourg, I, I can give um, the, the European perspective. As you know, that uh, Luxembourg is part of the European Union. So about the single market composed of 28 different national markets. And uh, yes, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a market growing together, but has still some fragmentation. So in order to boost fintech, we, 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 knew, we need to push the, the capital markets union and uh, go for a more integrated uh, banking union. And this is something the European uh, Commission is uh, very much uh, looking into and has set this goal uh, on, on, on his agenda. So um, yes, this is something which, uh, which will gain momentum. And, and uh, I, I very much share the timeline that we are now very much coming from uh, the Disrupt the perspective in the fintech world to to a more collaboration um, aspect where you can see that the incumbent players are very much collaborating uh, with the with the new fintech players and this is how we would like to see the process moving on uh, that fintechs the new players the innovative players help the incumbent players to get their digital transformation done. Uh, I think the question was uh, uh, in my mind. How did regulators respond uh, to this whole shift? And I'll take a very specific example. In 2015, again, using that as a timeline, a starting point, we looked at, for example, the payment space. It, it was historically three things. There's a designated payment system, and there's a bunch of payment activity done by the bank. So you regulate the bank. And there are pieces of uh, multilateral infrastructure like SWIFT. 
that's all about payments. But 2014 or maybe much earlier, you saw the payment ecosystem getting unbundled. There were players who were doing e-wallet. There are players who are doing acquiring services. There are players who are doing uh, issuer services. There are players who are in between the uh, between the two payment apps. So you saw a lot of unbundling of financial service or payment services in particular. Now, how did we respond to that? The way we also responded is unbundling our own regulation. From these three blocks of large entity-based regulation, we unbundled the regulation to seven different categories. That seven category defines the current space of payment. From e-money uh, operator to acquirers to issuers to, to, to uh, processors. So what it allows now the fintech player to be regulated now within this smaller buckets, which are risk uh, appropriate regulated for the activity they do. So it brings the balance of regulation for the activity they are in, engaged with. It allows regulator, regulators to cover the whole space and manage the whole space in a much more safe and secure way. So unbundling regulation to an activity-based regulation from an entity-based regulation was is perhaps one of the most impactful shift of regulators responding to fintech. Yeah, that's very interesting. Philip, do you want to? Yes, uh, maybe that, that's that's a, that's a really interesting uh, approach, and um, regulators uh, in Europe take a, a similar approach uh, uh, when it comes to to, to innovation. Uh, but the, the difference maybe in Europe is that um, uh, innovation um, is not only a matter uh, uh, about uh, regulation, but there there are cultural issues too. So uh, as you know, uh, we have a, an integrated market uh, with 28 nations and with 28 different cultures, 28. Uh, or not not at 28 but a lot of different languages so of course regulation play, plays a major role but in, in in terms of penetration in terms of adaptation of, of new financial services there are a huge difference among the, the different countries within the European Union and this is uh, for the time being very interesting uh, to compare and to see uh, which kind of services are, are being developed in, in the different countries. I think just to add in this juncture, there is also a play of national infrastructure playing a significant uh, role in the future construct of the regulatory framework. I'll give an example. Uh, we all understood why fintechs are highly successful because they have amazing onboarding experience for customer. Banks onboarding of customers is painful. It takes days. And even if you onboard an account, you come back to the customer every now and then to really validate the customer exists in your system. Now, how can we respond? How can we get our banks to be equally simply simple in the way they onboard customers? So in Singapore, we build a national infrastructure called MyInfo, which provides a national infrastructure for eKYC. Once you put that national infrastructure for eKYC, is an API-based infrastructure. You take all the trusted data of the of the of the customer straight through open the account. Now, by that by that by that infrastructure out there, you made the banks like fintechs now, simple, straight through, five-minute digitally onboarding customers. So there are interesting way regulators can respond by building public goods to be to make this new the incumbents effective in the world of fintech. So I want to come back to the question of 
regulation uh, mm. in just a bit. But can we just survey the wider landscape of fintech a little bit? Uh, you had made mention of Africa yes. as another domain where there are lots of innovations happening. But there's also China. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those experiences and then we come back to the regulatory question. Well, yes. Um, um Fintech is uh, emerging everywhere. Uh, uh, of course, it takes different uh, kind of shapes. That has historical reason. That has uh, telecommunication infrastructure reason. That might have uh, cultural reason. That's why we can see that financial services in Africa, for example, have been uh, most operated by telecommunications operator. In China, we see uh, two major players within within the the, the payments uh, industry, which both of them have have their own uh, closed system. Uh, we we have the UPI system in 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 India. Which is uh, which is pretty amazing because it's interoperable. It's ca- kind of an open source which can scale internationally, uh, and um, and this is where regulation has uh, indeed uh, to follow up, and um, um, where also the exchanges between these different ecosystem uh, have to be constant. And uh, in Luxembourg, we we uh, we we are seeking uh, to exchange with a lot of different uh, regulators, uh, among them uh, the master in, in, in Singapore, to to understand and to. Uh, uh, to find uh, move towards a common framework and uh, I'm 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 also very glad and I read a lot from the Bank of International Settlements with this uh, the, the, the the central banks of of the central banks and regulators and uh, they 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 are gaining momentum now on on on, on trying to 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 set up this uh, this kind of framework so let's take the africa example then I'll contrast with the china example uh in africa they started their own tech finance revolution from the telco industry, who primarily went around solving a very interesting market gap of moving money digitally. And the MPSA story is well known to everybody. So no point in repeating that, why that's such a fabulous story for all of us to be inspired till now. But that also created an interesting regulatory shift in African countries, which are very progressive when it comes to fintech. Uh, They started looking at... uh, are redefining some of the regulatory practices and also how to bring these mobile players to the to the regulatory peri- perimeter of of supervising them. But I want one example to me still, uh, which is a new example, which is still to me once one a standout for Africa. I was in ECB uh, retreat last week, and we talked about how regulators are also becoming fintechs in the way they look at things. For last two to three years, every regulators are speaking about something called, can we automate the regulatory reporting using the same tools fintech does, uh, use AI, data, APIs, and make the whole regulatory reporting fintech-like? Guess what? The only country in the world which has achieved this is Central Bank of Rwanda, which, has te- which is now in a position to real-time take data from 600 FIs and in every 15 minutes from mobile operators, an API best processed and, and do the reg reporting straight through. So Africa, in a way, as they showed in MPESA of doing e-money, they're also showing way how regulators should also respond to this new world of tech-driven financial services. That's Africa for you. Absolutely. Take the example of China. China started from a very different uh, plate. That's the e-commerce success. You have Alibaba and there's a the social media uh, we we chat which started the whole process of bringing finance 
to a platform-based construct. So as the platform become bigger, people are engaging in those platform, they started putting payments there. Then they started doing small lending. I think that was an experiment to me. China was a huge public unregulated sandbox. In a way, it was devolving organically and the regulators stepped in when they found it is necessary for them to step in. As an example, last year, China bought all the um, payment uh, apps or payment system to the national infrastructure for for uh, for the for for mo- uh, moving all the transactions through the national clearing system. So China has responded after it, it reaches a, cap- a critical mass. I think that's way of they're doing things in a different way. So different market responds in different way. I think that's something the, the diversity of approach makes the whole space interesting. Yeah, and the China sort of penetration of uh, digital payments is actually quite striking, right? I mean, even amongst very poor people, I yes. remember in Beijing, if you walk through the subways, you know, you have people who are busking, playing music, and, you know, you yes. typically give them some money. Absolutely. You can actually have a QR code for that. And and, and the regulators uh, uh, saw that as a good social output, and they were not, uh, not coming uh, heavy-handed on that whole process. But when they saw a systemic uh, risk coming in, they intervened. And that's a very thoughtful intervention by China to put the national infrastructure for clearing for all the transactions. I think that's a model for, and it works for China. It may not work for other market, but then different markets have different approach. The India approach was building national infrastructure, then responding to that. So it seems to me that there is a broad kind of, you know, dilemma for regulators in this space, right? So on the one hand, how do you keep up with the pace of innovation and change? And there are so many new entities, so many new ideas which are coming, which are being tried out. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to have regulation having such a heavy footprint that it stifles the same kind of innovation. And both of you work in locations which are, you know, really the hubs of innovation as far as fintech is concerned. So how have regulators in, in you know, Singapore or in uh, Luxembourg really coped with this kind of challenge of saying, how do we keep track of what's happening so that we're not entirely behind the curve as far as risk is concerned. But at the same time, we are not regulating in such heavy-handed ways that we are stifling the same innovation from happening. Well, yes, this is this is the whole point. Uh, actually, we are coming from 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 the crisis 2008, um, with afterwards uh, an avalanche of, of of new regulation, all bearing in mind to to protect uh, the, the consumer uh, and to, to to make the system uh, more more secure. And uh, in parallel, we had this uh, growing uh, fintech uh, innovation uh, market, and um, it was uh, uh, a real challenge for the regulators to, to, to strike the, the, the right balance. And uh, some actors in the market would like that, uh, that the regulators are moving even faster uh, than, than they already do. But it is, a, it is a, in Europe, at least for historical reasons, uh, um, um, the regulator is moving in the way it is um, currently moving. That means always striking uh, the balance uh, between uh, the consumer protection and um, innovation uh, capacities. We kind of created a three-way to deal, deal with this challenge. The first approach was a culture of experimentation. And that that leads to the word called sandbox. The second approach was things where there's no need for regulatory intervention, but there's a need for regulators to understand new technology, a public infrastructure for experiments. And I'll give example for each of them. And the third box was creating incentive structures through grants, through special 
uh, incentives in terms of uh, either for money or policy support on new ideas which the banks and the financial institutions want to pursue. So on the first category of a regulatory sandbox, which is essentially a infrastructure which we built, which allows a bank or a fintech company to put a product into the market where there are three barriers, or at least one significant barrier is the policy barrier. They will come to MAS into the sandbox. There are three filters to check out. One is they have to explain to the regulators why there's a policy barrier for that idea, what public good it brings this idea, but it has to be for greater good. And third, why this technology is innovative. And then once they get through this criteria, they work with the MAS and we look at this whole product on a production grade infrastructure and understand how this is changing the regulatory view. And if at all that is really good, we make the necessary adjustment to the regulation. So collaborative experiment model is a sandbox. There are uh, ideas which have no regulatory barrier, but they can create unknown risk because the complexity of technology. For that, as an example, MAS in partnership with World Bank built a public infrastructure called API Exchange, which allows banks and the fintech company to go to a public cloud infrastructure and do prototypes, experiments, and that allowed the banks to get into that whole collaboration space. And the third one, things like very futuristic. Can we move the payment infrastructure to a blockchain-based system? As an example, MAS with 15 banks, global banks, created a program called Project Ubin, which looked at a five-phase program of applying payment system into onto blockchain using digitized uh, national currency, both domestic and cross-border for settling against cash or settling against securities. And that program runs for multi-year and allows regulators to understand what they can anticipate in future. So these are the three models, and it has been highly effective for us, and it allows us to also build our own capacity to understand these new changes, and also help the industry to grow um, further. And just in a in a in a in a lighter vein, um, one of the challenges in the fintech world is that they don't get a lot of, especially the business to business fintech, they don't get a lot of investors' seed money, because one of the challenges in that space is to get a lead investor who understand what this technology is all about. And I was joking that the biggest lead investor in Singapore is now the MAS Sandbox, because once these companies come to the sandbox, there's a sense of they're getting regulated, it brings higher confidence, and they raise a lot of money. So in a way, regulatory experimentation partnership brings more credibility to the fintech space, which, which ends up getting more investors' money into the space. It promotes better innovation, and hopefully that leads to a much evolved financial architecture of future. Fascinating. And how has Luxembourg emerged as this sort of power center as far as fintech is concerned? What, what was the history? Well, uh, our government really uh, acknowledged um, really early uh, that, that that fintech uh, will become a, a major driver. And so uh, we, uh, our regulator has a different role in, in, in Luxembourg and in Europe than, than uh, MAS. Uh, there are certain things the regulators can do and others uh, they, they, they can't. So in, in, in Luxembourg, they, they have mainly a sub supervisory role. So 
what the, the, the industry and the government decided together is to set up an, an infrastructure which is, which is called uh, the Luxembourg House of Financial uh, Technology, the, the loft, uh, which is much more than an, an incubator, which is basically uh, having the role on putting Luxembourg on, onto the FinTech uh, map um, and uh, collaborate with uh, other important financial center uh, on this topic and to attract FinTech uh, to Luxembourg uh, by helping them to, 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 uh, to set up, by providing uh, office space, by uh, providing uh, partnership opportunities. And, uh, and this has proven to be uh, very successful uh, so far. Always with an open mind that collaboration is key to development uh, uh, of, of the fintech uh, world. So, you know, we had a reference to blockchain earlier uh, in a context, and I think it's it's difficult to have a conversation about mm-hmm. fintech for a general audience without really talking about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and yes. so on. So, what is the state of play there? Oh, the uh, in the blockchain space, uh, I, if I can summarize in a limited time we have, we have landed into two two big groups. Uh, maybe in three big buckets. Uh, and these three big, big buckets represent the token economy. And that's the crypto side. And there's a blockchain platform. So on the on the three buckets on the crypto side, there's one set of cryptos, which are payment tokens, which are essentially an alternate form of paying each other. The second buckets are asset tokens. This token represent an asset and, and that becomes highly liquid and it can be stored and exchanged. And the third buckets are tokens which represent securities or, or uh, as, a, as an alternate way to uh, have ownership on, uh, on a company. Uh, if you take the first bucket, I think, uh, which is can get as interesting as Libra, uh, I think regulators are dealing with that, saying that get into the space of regulation, do your, do your money laundering KYC proper, Maybe there's a chance to look at it. We'll see. Still out there, only country in the world which has issued a national digital currency in a token form is Cambodia. Rest are still evolving. In that space, most countries have agreed, at least most regulators are agreeing that there's a space and a play for wholesale digital currency because it allows cross-border settlement far more efficient. So there is a play that that can get into production state in a couple of years time. On the second bucket, asset tokenization, I think most regulators have taken a position. There's nothing to regulate there. You're just tokenizing a physical asset. So as long as you are managing your consumer protection, money laundering properly, it should be okay. On the third bucket, I think almost every regulators, market regulators have in, in a way single response that our existing Securities and Futures Act are good enough for you to comply. If you want to play in the space, comply with this regulation or else we will catch you. So that's the state and play of cryptos and tokens. On the blockchain side, I think it has evolved faster. I I personally believe 2020 will be the year of large national cross-border production-grade infrastructure deployment of blockchain. Three big areas, trade finance, uh, insurance, and any provenance supply chain finance, uh, long-term infrastructure development. It's going to happen. It's going to be real. With China just announcing their national strategy for blockchain, you imagine the whole market has just gone to a more positive 
frenzy now. So that will take off. I think that has got interesting uh, way to go forward in terms of how they impact the whole. It's almost like a new internet. I think that's what will be see the new next next impact on the whole blockchain space. Distributive te um, uh, uh, ledger technology will, will 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 play a role in in all major sectors of, of the financial industry, uh, from cryptocurrency to, to to capital markets in in, in general. Uh, that that we believe is true. When it comes to cryptocurrency uh, in Europe, it is considered to, for the time being uh, a crypto asset, uh, which uh, which is considered like any other assets, and uh, which for the time being also is is, is very volatile and uh, and uh, the European Central Bank, the Bank of International Settlement and the European Commission uh, um, are very much now uh, considering uh, how to move uh, uh, further in, in, in this space and uh, uh, they will soon come up with uh, in terms of regulation with, uh, with new ideas. I, I strongly believe so. And there's been a lot of recent discussion about Libra and uh, particularly around the hearings in the United States and so on. And what, what, what is your sense about how that is likely to play out? Is it something that countries are looking at? I know that there are reports about reserve banks, uh, you know, including the ECB and others looking at the possibility of what kind of use a, a, in an electronic currency like that could have. Yes, for the time being, uh, they look into it. They don't have a, a clear response uh, uh, yet, and and for the time being, fiat money and the the, the money issued by by, by central bank uh, is the only legal tender, and it's the only uh, currency actually uh, where there's a. a, a protected way for the consumers, which which is the deposit guarantee and the investor guarantee schemes, which only apply to uh, to fiat money, which is issued by 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 any given uh, central bank. Uh, I'm a little confused there because if you look at all the Libra public pitches, they're telling they're going to solve the inclusion problem. They're going to solve people, 1.5 billion people who are cross-border, who don't have a good way to move money. But they're asking permission from countries which doesn't have inclusion problem. So there's a one one confusing, uh, you know, I a little get confused, they're asking permission from Europe where there's not much inclusion problem, but they're trying to solve inclusion problem in other market where they should be talking. Second thing, I'm, I, I think when, if at all they come to this market, the regulators are going to ask them to focus on three things. Know your customer. It cannot be a Facebook account equal to a bank account or a payment account. They must significantly improve that whole process. Second, they should have significant stake in operation controls over money laundering because the pitch of Libra is cross-border. And third, regulators are going to look at the asset backing those tokens whether that will impact the dollarization or some kind of currency uh, impact on those respective market. If they don't solve the problem, the bigger agenda will not get solved. And my sense is Libra team will start focusing on their real use case and get to work with those countries where the work use case are going to make the impact. And they go to get the regulators into their discussion to get these three things right. In fact, uh, you know, I was struck that when Mark Zuckerberg was talking about uh, Libra, um, he, he actually took a, made a geopolitical case effectively uh, to the United States government, saying that if we don't do it, the Chinese are going to do it. And that's going to have some impact for the dollar's primacy in the international financial system. But I'm quite because that's uh, because when I met, meet any Libra pitch, they tell me they're solving inclusion problem. If that is the uh, their real purpose of Libra, I want to see a dialogue in Philippines, in Vietnam, in this market how they're going to comply with the local regulation and deliver that value. That's it. So simple. 
instead of with this complicated geopolitical discussion, which I myself don't understand and can't comment on that. So looking at India from the outset, and we've had some references to India in, in the conversation already. I mean, what is striking to you about the fintech space and the regulatory landscape around it? And, and how do you see this evolving in the months and years ahead? Well, well, um, it's my first time in India, uh, but I, I, I had the opportunity to, to meet a, a lot of Indian fintechs at the Singapore uh, festival. And uh, it is impressive uh, um, how many different uh, players are operating successfully in India. And um, uh, what I understand too is there is now uh, a growing appetite for, for, for Indian fintechs to scale uh, up uh, internationally. And and uh, and I, be, I believe there, 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 there's a real uh, opportunities for Indian uh, fintechs uh, to do so. When there's a WhatsApp group called fintech, uh, India fintech group dot in or something like that, which I'm part of that. Uh, in that, if you look at, it's a very intense group. And if you look at for last three years, the dominant narrative has been lending and payments. My only little uh, humble advice to the Indian fintech ecosystem, I can, they can make the narrative much bigger. They can expand that to much wider asset class, to insurance, to capital market. And I think that will bring the whole Indian fintech ecosystem to a much different level of engagement. Uh, having stuck, getting stuck in this two narrative, sometimes it is great, but also can be highly distracting because it kind of dilutes the whole purpose of re-architecting the whole financial sector end to end. I think that's where I think India has to think, but India has always been inspiration for all of us, especially the national infrastructure like Aadhaar and the subsequent response by the a fintech company in exploiting this infrastructure to provide a better financial services. And let's hope some people are listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, India is, is, is too modest. I, 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 I do agree. And um, um, as, 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 as a small country, which has uh, very much uh, developed in multi-jurisdictional uh, and multicultural expertise, it is, it is very important uh, for Indian companies before scaling up international uh, to dive into the different cultures and see uh, what implication that could have for, for, for business uh, development abroad. So before we sign off, uh, is there anything that you would recommend to our listeners, a book, an article or a report, uh, which can help them get a better sense of some of the issues that you so nicely outlined here today? Well, um, it's a long time. I haven't been reading a book, uh, to be honest. What I'm reading is uh, a lot of publications coming from different kind of uh, central banks, the International Bank of Settlements, uh, MAS uh, and others. And this is for the time being uh, what I'm reading and which is really interesting because uh, we are on the move and uh, and the latest publications and the books are already uh, old when when they come out in terms Absolutely. of content uh, so uh, if you want to keep up to date you you, you have to, to to read what's what's being produced right now and then uh, re relatively rapidly uh, my recommendation will be read the BIS paper almost like a religious yeah. uh, process uh, uh, interestingly, because BIS, if you look at the history of BIS, the technology was not part of the mandate. Last year or so, they have significantly invested on the whole world of policymaking impact due to technology. The papers coming out of BIS are interesting, highly comprehensive, very thoughtful, balanced read. So I recommend to everybody who's following this space, read the BIS report. Further, BIS recently announced the setting of its unprecedented uh, innovation hubs 
where they would experiment with new ideas. And they're setting up one lab in, in Zurich, one in Hong Kong, one in Singapore. And Singapore one, especially for India, it'll be interesting because they're going to experiment on public goods and reg tech and sub tech as, an, as a focus area. That's on the papers. The book, I think, will influence on the choices we're going to make on the fintech is Raghuram Rajan's book on Third Pillar. I'm reading that book. I think the way he has painted the, 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 to bring the, the community together in our own policy thinking is perhaps the right way to solve the future challenges we are going to face. Great. And we'll put up links on the show notes to BIS papers as well as Raghuram Rajan's book. Uh, Sapnendu, Philip, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage 